Jim, um, I'm going to bring in um, a gentleman we both know quite well, Dennis Hines. I had a recent conversation with him about the soccer camp that's going to be happening in, in, in Scarif um, just after the bank holiday weekend. And we were talking different things. And he mentioned to me um, about uh, Canadian soccer players with treaty ladies basically about 12 that are over from canada and they're with um how do you say with our local soccer uh, club in limerick and he was yeah, saying to me treaty celtic. celtic yeah it's treaty celtic and he was saying to me listen get onto the blower and basically talk to one of the one of the lads inside and get a couple of their goalkeepers out to scarif to basically do a day coaching course with the with all the goalkeepers at the club at different levels that that was the way to go and of course Darren Randolph which is with Brian's uh, Bray Wanderers he's he has his own um, how do you say academy goalkeeping yeah. academy and I think it's up in Galway either last week or the, or the coming weeks yeah he spends a lot of time doing uh, these coaching camps and I think um, if you look at uh, uh, say Kelleher then Bazunu Darren Randolph goalkeeper is probably the position that we're doing best at in terms of providing players uh, at, at the very top level uh, certainly in men's soccer um, so um, I think we need to to maximise that and, and keep uh, trying to trying to utilise that because you know there's obviously potential for us to produce top level goalkeepers and and we've proved that uh, with the, with those three just to to mention and then um you know like uh, that's down to coaching though fundamentally that comes down to to coaching so the more you can do on the coaching side the more you're um going to maintain that pathway and that uh, pipeline going forward could you argue with all the saudi money that's poaching players we say from the Premier League, is there any chance that some uh, younger English and younger Irish players might get a chance? And I'll just pass the cynical comment in. It's all well and good having good goalkeepers, but we need sort of people that can stick the ball into the net and, you know, for from the men's national team as well. Uh, I, I suffered um, the last 20 minutes of the game against Greece, Brian. And I, I've, I'll freely admit I haven't watched a lot of men's international soccer over the last few years, but oh my, it sort of reminded me of the last days of Stan, and that wasn't good. It, it was very poor, and I think there was a, a a major change in public opinion after that game. Uh, people who had hitherto been supportive of Stephen Kenny um, were uh, changing tune um, and. Uh, there was pressure on the FAI to to to, to maybe uh, terminate his contract, um, and then they they let him have the Gibraltar game, which he won narrowly. And then the line was, "Well, we can't sack him. We, we've just won a match, but you, you beat Gibraltar." Like uh, uh, so, now we're we're facing into an autumn where we we still have uh, Stephen Kenny in charge, um, and, and games against France, two against the Netherlands, and have to play Greece again. Um, whereas if maybe we'd changed manager, we could have had Chris Hutton or someone in to have those games and build towards the qualification for for twenty twenty four. But look, it is what it is. Uh, we we don't have the players, but at the same time, uh, maybe a a manager more uh, versed in uh, English club football would have 
got more out of that group um uh, whereas Stephen Kenny didn't have that uh, doesn't have that on his CV he's never managed in in the championship or the Premier League in England where those players play and I think uh, this is been uh, a problem for me from from the time Stephen got the job that um, without that experience um, he wasn't going to be successful and uh, it became obvious to me quite early on that this isn't working out people cut him a lot more slack because he'd come from League of Ireland um, and the FEI were were happy to 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 go along with that because they they wanted to keep a low profile after the scandals of John Delaney and all that but I think it's time for a change now and um, uh, we we need to be thinking of maybe can we get Chris Hewton go on Jim I'm by the way I was one of the people that was very much in favour of Stephen Kenny and uh, like my my two avid friends here in front of me and uh, quite disillusioned after the Greece uh, match Jim, you still with us? Yeah. Um, I, you're, you're subdued as well after all that conversation. I, I, I would be... I, I know what Stephen... Well, sorry. I, I, have a, I appreciate what Stephen Kenny is trying to do. But one of the things we're overlooking is that we, we have a limited enough squad. Now, the, the only... And as well as that, we're looking at people, in my opinion... As to take over as people who are into retirement age. That's not what we need. Now, uh, I would, if, if we were going changing, uh, I think we need some of the younger Irish coaches that are working in England. And there are quite a number of them. Uh, there's, uh, the, the, there's two guys at Nottingham Forest. Um, Jesus, I'm having a bad morning with names. Must be my age. Uh, we we have a, a former a man that is doing very well with the uh, the FA with their under underage teams. And these are the kind of people we need. There is no doubt in my book that the game has changed a hell of a lot from the Nick McCarthy's the um, the other people that have played for Ireland. We need now guys that are currently in um, with the, the way the game is now played. And I think that there are a number of coaches that are in England, are on decent contracts, I would think, in Nottingham Forest. There's uh, John uh, O'Shea is at, is he, is he at Derby County still? Um, there is a number of guys like him there that have done their badges and do know the game. And then there is, uh, uh, what you call him, his father played Hurland for Cork. Uh, he's, he's at Hull, if I'm right. Uh, these are guys that are all in their late 30s, early 40s that are already working and coaching at a younger level. And maybe they're the guys that we should be looking at. Now, the only thing that worries me about Stephen Kenny, we had, and he had in his backroom team, some very, very good coaches. But I can't understand why they left. Is there a reason for that? Um, like we had the guy that was at Chelsea, he's now on the continent, if I remember rightly, um, and we had another man as well. And um, these guys were all de decent and highly regarded coaches, younger men. And I think that we should have been um, wondering, what is wrong with Stephen? Does he not want to delegate enough? Or 
Is he a difficult enough man when it comes to man management at that kind of level? Uh, maybe he's not quite as good as John Kiley, who manages the the backroom team with the Limerick Hurlands. But I think that's a skill that uh, people now need to be. Like, there's no doubt that the manager are at uh, Man City. Um, he seems to be really well able to look after his coaches and his backroom team. And they seem to let the people get on with it. Now, there is also a, an Irish coach on the Man City under-23 team, uh, Jimmy uh, Barry Murphy. Now, he must be, he has experience in managing. Why is these the guys that we're not thinking about? And we're thinking about guys, in my opinion, that are still would bring us back to the Martin O'Neill era, which I couldn't stand. Well, go ahead, Brian. I've, yeah, I've uh, Brian Barry Murphy, uh, Jimmy Barry Murphy's son. So he he played with uh, with Rochdale, who I support, and then he had a spell uh, managing Rochdale, uh, um, kept them in League One, uh, which was a big achievement when you consider that after he left the club, uh, got relegated to League Two, and then now down to the National League. So he got uh, snapped up by Manchester City, um, as Jim has said to 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 be part of their coaching team um, and some of the other names that were mentioned there so take Lee Carsley as an example who's very highly thought of within the FA um, if you could uh, secure the services of someone like that that would certainly be a direction to go in that I'd be supportive of and uh, someone just take stay with Lee Carsley someone like that would have not have the problems that um, Stephen Kenny has with Stephen Kenny you've got somebody who's managed very successfully at club level in the League of Ireland but uh, hasn't got experience beyond that and I think when you're trying to get the best out of a group of players who play at, at championship or Premier League level in England you need to have someone that they that can uh, that has done that now Lee Carsley has done that he's played at the top level in England over a very long career plus now he's got his badges and he's in a, a coaching role and is successful so someone like that would be ideal if the uh, FAI would, would go in that direction um, certainly that would be a an option to uh, an alternative to, to Chris Hewton who I suggested uh, that would be an alternative to that that, that I would be supportive of um, if they could if they could get Lee Carsley that would be brilliant Jim um, just one or two points in relation to that um, with regards to the coaches Damien Duff was with the Irish setup, and there was a fallout there in relation to a video yeah. that um, Stephen Kenny played. Then we had the other situation. It, it seems to, for whatever reason, when it comes to Irish national teams, the our history kind of follows us around a little bit, that we have to use a part of our history to inspire our current players. I mean, we know what happened with the, the girls after they qualified against Scotland that night when they were in the changing rooms and they, and they, they what you call it, they chanted the wrong song. So, I mean, our history kind of follows. Is it, is it that the Irish team is a bit of a poison chalice, let's say, for the last... Since, since the success um, has kind of finished from a point of view of going to the World Cups, going to the Euros, is it that it's become um, a managerial role that not everyone really wants? That if you're a young coach, that you'd prefer to be a first-team coach with the likes of Chelsea or with Newcastle or with Manchester United. And the other thing I, I, I want to say is that 
when you look at, at kind of s- successful players coming forward that are now managerial material and current managers, Pep Guardiola was a centre half, Lee Carsley was a defensive midfielder. Alex Ferguson didn't play at the highest level, but he was I think he was a centre back as well. It seems to be defensively minded former players that take on the role of of being of wanting to be a coach or a manager. Now, I might be completely uh, wrong. I mean, Brian Barry Murphy, um, how do you say may or may not be the same? I'm just wondering, is, defender, it just, yeah. is, it, is it just is it, is it a conspiracy theory that I'm injecting into the conversation? Strikers are too selfish. I, I, I think true. Well, I mean, you think of Zinedine Zidane. I mean, he's supposed to be a, a great motivator and he had great success with Real Madrid, but they had a fantastic team, you know, and he had the very, very best at the time. But there's, there's, there's question marks about his coaching ability if he was given a lower class football team to manage. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I think uh, if, you, if you think of a, a defender or a defensive midfielder on the pitch, they're they're um, talking a lot more somebody in that position very good they're they're very vocal on the pitch they've they've a great view of what's going on I think uh, so naturally they'll kind of almost be leaders on the pitch and then um, after they finish playing uh, a lot of them want to become leaders in terms of coaching and and, and management um, so I'd agree that there is something in that and as well as that Jim just to, just to refer back to your local knowledge uh, Pat Purcell being the the what's called the manager of Newmarket Celtic, he was also a very very competent centre half for Limerick, um, what's called in his days. I mean, he was their leader and he was their their tower of strength. Uh, he was, uh, and uh, Paddy uh, had a very good backroom team as well. Though uh, he had um, um, Owen O'Brien as his assistant. Now Owen is a He's a teacher by profession. He teaches in um, St. Munchens. Uh, Owen is very much into the whole technology thing. And as his father said to me, my God, Jim, we have a garage full of stuff for doing video analysis, for being able to give every player a DVD uh, of his performance and all of that type of thing. And I just realized that this is what current and modern players want. They want to be able to be to see how they played, how they performed, and that is where the game is moving. And that's why, in fact, I feel that the younger coaches uh, are what we need. Now, the big problem is uh, how satisfying is the job as Irish manager or any national team for an ambitious coach who is, say, in his late 30s, who has done all of the badges, who has worked with a club, um, could the Irish job be done in such a way that a fella would be able to remain at a club? Now, that would depend on his chairman and the manager, but and do some work with Ireland. I mean, if we think about it, we had very highly paid managers here, a million quid a year. Guard, um, they, they, what is his name? Martin, Martin O'Neill. O'Neill. We had uh, others Trapatone. as well. Um, and... These guys never saw an Irish, were never at an Irish training session, for God's sake. They depended on DVDs and all of that stuff. And I feel that, unfortunately, uh, I would think that Stephen Kenny is probably changing that kind of environment. (coughs) And it would be very interesting to see how Robbie Keane does in his first real management role 
out in Israel. Now, uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the problems with uh, what's his name, God, I'm, I'm having a bad morning name-wise, uh, with Shelburne, is he a little bit too... Um, um, well, he's a bit inexperienced, I suppose. Uh, um, um, anyway, he'll come to me. Uh, Damon Duff, uh, Shelburne. Maybe he gets into trouble <coughs> with referees and that. But it's no doubt he seems to have put a shape on Shelburne that wasn't there a couple of seasons ago. Damien Duff I'm talking about here. Um, and maybe um, he's a bit early in his time to be involved with the FAI. Now, I gather his relationship with the FAI always has been a little bit fraught with whatever. Um, the FAI also has a problem that, unfortunately, it appears that our CEO has not moved to live in Ireland, that he still commutes from the UK. Now, he stays here a little bit like Patrick Keelty will do. But, um, you know, I, I think a CEO of the organization should actually be based in the country. And then we have to make sure that whoever is the manager or coach of the Irish international team also is based here because he needs to be looking at the underage levels <coughs> and working with the managers of our under-17s, our under-19s and all of that <coughs> right down. And we do have facilities in Abbottstown for to be able to get these guys together on a more regular basis. One of, I think that's what we need to be able to do. One of um, Luke's favourite players of all time, <laughs> Robbie Keane. I'm going to get you, to, uh, what's it called, come in there, Luke. Uh, I wonder, has he paid back a few bob to the FAI? <clears throat> out of what he what he was due, I said yeah. Robbie might have been a semi decent striker, but uh, I don't think anyone could forgive him for what he did. Just basically again taking the money and run, but and not as if he stuck for a but, few bob. But you know, Stephen Kenny didn't want him either. He t he he told him to take the high road as well. So he was getting paid, but Stephen Kenny didn't want yeah, him in I his in but, his uh, group. But this is this is I I, I refer back to one of your favourite players, Tom, and Lord help me for. Quoting a Man United man, uh, fail, prepare to fail if you fail to prepare. And I think that a lot of the issues that are there are historical going back to the regime that has been at the top of the FAI for a large number of years. Now, just with that breaking news we had this morning that we're actually going to be at a tournament in 2028, it's five years. Is it not the perfect opportune time for... We'll say the FAI is sort of trying to, uh, in fairness to them, they haven't been making headlines for the last year, six, nine months a year. But is there still there's still no title sponsor? For still, no. still not. not, the, not the, the, the women's team have a title sponsor in Sky, and that's probably why they had to apologise for singing songs. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, the men's. The, the game, the organisation of the game, the structures, like, you know, you're way more in tune with that than I am. But it's just that if on high, if they can get their act together a little bit, they're looking at, we'll say, this tour, this qualifying uh, tournament will be over is it six, nine months. Or is it over November, is it? Over in November. Over yeah. November. OK, so, Jim, could you potentially look at a scenario where they go at next year, next, next year and say, look, we'll get, we'll say, we tried... Different with Stephen Kenny, it didn't work. And as you've alluded to, it's because he probably wasn't, um, he didn't have the experience, we'll say, of the English game at, you know, championship, where where the players came from. And I, I know 
Brian, you had always alluded to that when Kenny came in, if he had literally gone with League of Ireland players and given it a go, well, then you'd have been happy with that. And if they failed, they failed. But it was a bit like, you know, having a lad, uh, uh, it would be a bit like sort of have, having a local man going out trying to look after Ronaldo out in Saudi. It just won't work. So if you now said that if you, if and I don't know would they be prepared to do it because of the financial thing, but if you said if it could be done on a part-time basis that one or two of them would commit and say, right, we'll get involved. I, I can't do it sort of 24-7. But then you said the international game, an international manager, you don't need to be at a 24-7. You don't need to be paying a million euros a year to a lad to just sort of turn up for a few press conferences and play a few games and play silly beggars, uh, you know, other than that. Get them engaged. Like, if, if you had people in the UK that are involved in club football, they're going to games day in, day out. And, like, the sad reality of it is we have maybe one or two players in the Premiership. The vast majority of the players that they're picking from are in the Championship. If the coaching people are there in the lower leagues, exploit them. Use it. Get their knowledge. That That's my top of the... Yeah, I think, uh, I, I'm thinking back to Johnny Giles and to, just to agree with you because Johnny Giles uh, was still playing and managing in England uh, with West Brom, I think, late in his career when he was Ireland manager uh, and he did the Ireland uh, manager and he was player manager uh, and he did it on, on a part-time basis. So... Um, that definitely is an option that uh, they need to think about could this actually work better for us um, uh, especially someone like Lee Carsley uh, who's who's in England so he'll be able to he, he's based in England so he'll be able to go and watch all the players um, uh, over there um, you know if you did give someone like that the job full time it might work as well in that he, he's based in England so he can spend a lot of time watching players and then the the downtime could be spent over here doing the uh, coaching sessions and, and um, uh, trying to develop that side of it as well. I'm just going to come back in because we're speaking about organisations, we're speaking about coaches and realistically it's, I suppose professionalism is what it's about at this level. And we're seeing in the Women's World Cup how good these players are. And they're not necessarily from this part of Europe. They're from the other side of the world. And I suppose, in a way, maybe Vera Pau has basically outperformed. Maybe when you see the, the, the caption of outbelieving, I mean, she's overachieved with this group of players. But she's brought professionalism, regardless of anything that would have been in her past. They seem to be 100% behind her. They seem to be well coached. They seem to be, uh, their fitness levels seem to be right. And it's down to their ability. And the Australian game on another day could have possibly been a nil-all draw. And it would have been a very credible nil-all draw. And they would have possibly deserved it. Um, against Canada, especially the second half, uh, Canada could have really ran out, how do you say, 3-4-1 winners. They had a, their striker, uh, I'm not sure is it, Alistair had a couple of excellent chances um, to really to, to get a hat-trick in that game. But the thing is, the professionalism that doesn't exist within the FAI structure is, is, a, is a negative in relation to any coach taking it. But 
um, Vera Pau, I think, has shown that if you have the experience and you want to bring in your team, what you can actually achieve. Um, one thing in relation to the women's game, Luke, that you mentioned about, um, let's say, the powers of Saudi Arabia and Qatar and um, the Emirates and all that, is that, is it a possibility that the women's game is now going to take the place of the men's game from a point of view at for the for the the fan let's say that lives in the neighborhood that that wants to feel attached to a club because of the fact there's so much money in the men's game that it doesn't matter anymore that the women's game and because Saudi Arabia has its record with regards to women, that they won't be interested in promoting the women's game like they're doing with the men's game? Or is that just, again, a conspiracy theory or will that all change into the future? Because, I mean, the last couple of years, since England won the Euros, I mean, there's been a massive campaign and you see so many of the European and international ladies playing today that are playing for English sides. That I saw the other night there was a substitute coming on for Canada and she's just been signed by Arsenal. So is the women's game going to be promoted at the kind of the more national level as opposed to the men's game, which is now basically who's the highest bidder and I will go? Yeah, I think that's definitely uh, something that could uh, be the future. Um, uh, you know, the really big men's teams can afford to, to play anywhere. Um, they don't need uh, stadiums uh, for, for revenue. They could afford to play in, in empty stadiums. Their TV money is so big. Um, but the, the buzz of being at a live game, I think uh, anyone who goes to, to actual see soccer in the flesh, you, you the, the buzz of being there in a stadium so perhaps in the future it'll only be possible to go to watch uh, women's football or under 19s football whether it's uh, men or women or underage football matches they'll be the ones you'll go to to see in the flesh and uh, the, the the big ticket men's teams will just be something that's an entity on on television as a spectacle and won't be linked to an actual stadium or town or city uh, it could evolve that way um uh, you know it'd be a big change but i mean that's you, you can't stop you can't stop the juggernaut if that's the way it's going to go i mean just trying to draw an analogy with say music you know years ago when i was a teenager music was about going and buying a, a vinyl album and bringing it home and sitting in a room and listening to it whereas nobody could identify with that now with teenagers it's all about spotify or something and and who's to say sport couldn't go that way or football couldn't couldn't go that way such a, a change that it seems inconceivable but yet could well be the reality of the future Jim, we're approaching the last five minutes of the show, so we're, we're heading for, for injury time. Have you any thoughts in relation to uh, the game in general? Well, um, the, the game has evolved massively since when I first uh, saw my first uh, professional game, which I think was in the Isle of Man, actually, it was Carlisle playing somebody else. Um, and then watching League of Ireland matches here in the market field back in the day uh, of the great Al Finucan and uh, other great legends. And funny enough, uh, one of the teams that I always uh, always enjoyed watching in League of Ireland was actually Dundalk. Um, I'm looking at the game at the moment in League of Ireland and, so, uh, you know, while the crowds and all of that are up, 
I think we had a serious dose of reality in the last couple of weeks when it came to our League of Ireland clubs playing in Europe. Um, Shamrock Rovers are the team that, uh, we are the club and team, that basically that all the rest have to aspire to. Well, uh, Shamrock Rovers got a real dose of reality over the last couple of weeks in European soccer and including last night. Now, they were playing a very good side last night in, in uh, Budapest uh, in the first leg. Uh, Derry City won away in uh, Iceland. Um, and if, you know, am I right in thinking that Shamrock Rovers lost in, in Iceland as well? So it just shows you that we are lagging behind. And there is, while the League of Ireland is growing and getting crowds, the crowds are still very low in the sense of the big picture. Uh, if we think that a, a big crowd at, Tur- at um, uh, Tala uh, is six to 7,000, and we're trying to have a professional setup at four or 5,000 in Turner's Cross and two and a half to three uh, in, uh, in uh, the, the showgrounds in Sligo, um, I think the game has a long way to go. Now, you did ask there about the, the Saudi arrangement. I'm a great believer that the Saudis are very pragmatic. And if they find that the ladies or the women's soccer has serious appeal and starting to fill stadiums, which it is doing in England and getting good crowds, they won't be a bit afraid to get invested in that. Um, and, um, you know, while their the record with regard to um, a lot of things like uh, LGBT and maybe to women as well having to wear the various things... Um, they, they will change, and maybe it's the women's game is going to change that, not the men's game. So I think that uh, we have, to, and the fact that eighty odd thousand people watched the first game that Ireland played against Australia down there. Now I know some Irish people that are living in Sydney and Melbourne and whatever, and by God, they struggled to get tickets for the game, and that's an incredible thing. And you know, Jim, you're you're right because uh, I'm looking at one of the microphones here in um, our studio this morning, and it says "Made in Australia" at the very side of it. And it's great that it's, as I said, we're 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 a world. We're sitting here in Scarif, and we have our microphones from a different part of the world. And that's the way the world has kind of changed. We're not this small little island anymore. We're very much just a, a small little part of the of the footballing galaxy, and. I suppose the way pre-season has gone this year, you have all the English clubs over in the United States filling massive stadiums. And one of the big reasons that the English clubs go to America is their appeal and, of course, the language as well from a point of view of the following on a, on a Saturday in the American pubs. But the big thing is selling jerseys. And uh, the Manchester United kit is 80 euros this year. So, I mean, if you multiply that by X amount of million fans, whether it's in Asia or you're talking about the big populated parts of the world. This is the reason that Arsenal are playing Manchester United, Real Madrid are playing United over in Pittsburgh or as Luke's favorite destination in Boston uh, with the revolution. Same same thing, Luke. Yeah, yeah but it, it's all money. That's what I'm saying. It yeah. all boils but, down but, to money. Uh, OK, this isn't... Um this isn't uh, money, we'll say, coming from Saudis, but this is <clears throat> the Americanization of soccer slash football as a, as a business. I, mean, I could spend hours talking to you of about course. the business side of things, but um, I would just sort of want to bring it back to a level. And um, 
you spoke about uh, Wrexham, Rochdale. Brian, I'd be just intrigued. Tell us a little bit about Rochdale and the experience. Because, you, you know, you're talking about, we say that it's the, we might only be able to see the lower level teams, you know, in future or, or you know, underage, maybe for the national side, side of things, that the big clubs might be out of the range. Just tell us a little bit, like Jim has spoken to us about Newmarket and the great right. year that they had, you know. When it comes to Rochdale, how did it all start? What got you into Rochdale? I, I uh, kind of wanted to support a team that had um, was just a, b- a bit more real and in touch with uh, the, the community and the grassroots. And when you, when you become a bit disillusioned with, with top-level sport for just too much money um, and it's hard to identify with it, uh, Rochdale had a reputation for being the, the worst club in England historically in, in the top four divisions. They were always in the fourth division and uh, applying for re-election in the days before you got relegated down to the conference. Um, so, so I just uh, started supporting them and, and it grew from there. But n- now they're officially a non-league team after... After 102 years in the Football League, they've been relegated down to the National League. But yet they've still sold uh, a similar amount of season tickets, uh, a few thousands, that similar amount that they had when they were still in the Football League. Um, They're still going to be professional um, for for the next couple of years. Um, They... There's there's just a, an appeal about uh, you know supporting the underdog as well um, uh, the the challenge to to just survive and keep the show on the road um, you know they they rely very much on the local community and local support supporters to to come and do up the stadium before the the season starts there there, there isn't the money there to do anything other than try to to break even. Um, so it would be great if someone came in like what happened at, at Wrexham and uh, uh, I think the Wrexham thing, the certainly the, the, the TV show they made of it uh, was based on one that was had been done on Sunderland, only in Sunderland's case it was when they were getting relegated whereas Wrexham it was when they were on the up. Um, but, you know, Wrexham are now back in the Football League, they're going to find that you know it's not uh, they're not just going to coast all the way up to the to the premier league and be rubbing shoulders with manchester united it's it's going to be uh, the cold hard reality of playing in league 2 or league 1 jim give us your um club of passion which would you associate yourself with over the years um well when i worked in england uh, which was a long time ago now in the 70s i mean i used to go to uh, loftus road QPR, I saw Don Given in his pomp, um, and I saw the great uh, Stan Bowles, who I absolutely thought was absolutely magic to watch, didn't have a very long career, I think he got a couple of England caps, and uh, they had a very good goalkeeper as well, uh, at, Bowles, uh, at QPR, and there was uh, another Irish guy, he was of Italian descent, but he played for Ireland. I'm trying to remember his name. He had he was bald, if I remember rightly. Uh, maybe that was I can't remember. He was a big centre half anyway. But uh, yeah, it it was an interesting time. And uh, talking there about Rochdale, a, a very good friend of mine uh, who manages an underage team here in Clare, he has developed a bit of a relationship with Rochdale and has brought a team over 
to visit Rochdale on at least two occasions over the last few years since I think maybe it is after COVID or before COVID. I can't remember which now. But he found them absolutely, incredibly uh, decent people to deal with. And he said for underage kids like his under, uh, well, his team is under 16 now, so it must have been under 14 then, uh, that they had very good facilities. Uh, they had one of these domed training things that they um, shared with the local council. And, uh, I, you know, he, as I said, he found it brilliant. And, you know, what you're saying there about these small clubs in the UK, they, they are the heart and soul of uh, English soccer and football as we know it. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the great Ewan Fenton when he came to manage Limerick and he used to talk about Preston North End. He played for Blackpool. He won his cup medal at Blackpool. These are clubs that are all still fresh in our memory. I mean, Blackpool are still in the league. Uh, Preston are in the league. They've released a couple of the Irish guys, but they've always had one or two Irish players in their squad as well. The great uh, late Andy McAvoy was at Blackburn, uh, Mick McGrath was at Blackburn. Am I reminding you guys of when you were child children and I was still I was an adult? <laughs> Well, Jim, that's a, that's a, that's a lovely. I'm going to put you back to to Brian now. My attachment to to football outside of Manchester United in the Marcus Field at the age of twelve is my association with Southampton, because I came early and I popped out in Southampton. You see, that's the joy. So I have I have a, I have a dual citizenship. If I if I had been any good as a soccer player, Jim, I could I could have played for across the water as well. And Luke, how about yourself? Now we know we have the Liverpool case. Was there any any team over the years? That that you found like like Nottingham Forest or Lincoln City or Wrexham. No, I, I, I'll tell you what what it is, and it sort of goes back to I think a little bit why I'm sort of interested in business. I said uh, American football is my game, sure, <clears throat> right? But I, I'm sort of thinking that I don't know will the Saudis buy out the GA anytime soon. <clears throat> Maybe they might buy shares in GA go. But I'm just going to tell you in a way how, how it's funny how things go. Now you just bear in mind in twenty twenty six. Is the next World Cup? Yeah, is back in North America. It's in the North America, so it's Canada, Mexico, and the States. Yeah, okay. And I think that it is going to be. Um, there's a combination of events that have sort of happened in the last number of years, and are going to happen in relation to that in the next few years. And it all is down to business. But uh, the first time. Uh, if you sort of said a team that I sort of uh, grew an affinity to are. Uh, we, with Major League Soccer in the States and the Tom Lute earlier in Boston, it's the New England Revolution. <clears throat> and um, 2008 is the first time I saw them play. And I've never been as cold in my life watching a game on a, in a cold stadium in Boston in the middle of March. With a, as the man says, we, you think the wind here could be cold. The wind in the States, uh, you can't compare, compare to it. But there's a few people there who say Steve Ralston was one. He'd, he'd have been sort of like the player I would have lo- looked up to. But Taylor Twellman. And Jim, I'll ask you, do you know of Taylor Twellman? No. Right. Well, well, I tell you, you're probably going to know of him in in, in uh, the future because <clears throat> I was over in the States 
the tail end of last year, just as the World Cup was underway. And it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, we'll say, when the games were on. So you're sort of trying to half wake up and you sort of had the Yanks there telling you all about it. Taylor Twellman played with the Revolution, scored 100 goals for them. His career was ended early by concussion, but he went into broadcasting. And he's a successful broadcaster and he would have been the voice of American soccer uh, on ESPN, which is, you know, which had a, the rights to some of the, the games of Major League Soccer in the States. Now, <clears throat> the league has grown exponentially over the last number of years. And this year, you talk about, we said they don't need the Saudi money, they're, they're taking the fruit money. The MLS, which is Major League Soccer, signed a 10 year streaming deal with uh, Apple for basically 250 million euros a year for the rights for the league. When Beckham went to the States, uh, ESPN were paying, I think, about 3 million a year to to maybe show 40 or 50 games. The game has evolved uh, that the league in the States now, they have 29 teams that are going to have a 30th, and I think they're going to sort of maybe, you know, t- take a, a, a pause at it there because they're going to have to make a decision. They have based their model on American sports in that the teams are franchises and the concept of relegation to them does not exist. They're going to have to make a decision in the next few years. If they're going to keep expanding in the States, 30 teams is too many to have in your top level tier and they're going to have to introduce the concept of relegation. But the deal that they signed with Apple TV and you might have uh, heard there that uh, they signed uh, a club there that's based out of Miami that's in existence for, oh, you know, they're a very historical club there in existence for about five years. Um, they signed some player there that used sort of a kick a ball around Europe and he won a few, what do they call those Ballon things d'or. there? Uh, yeah, Ballon d'Ors. He won a few of those yokes there. And uh, he, he, he didn't, in fairness to him, he didn't take the Saudi money, but we could talk, we could talk about the whole financial side of that uh, on another day's episode. But you have Messi is now in the States. He has 435 million followers on Instagram and he sent out a message to his followers there a few days ago saying, oh, you come and you want to come and see me play? Sign up for Apple TV. The deal that they have done with him, and this is where I go back to business, he has he's going to be getting money from Adidas for every shirt that is sold in the league and he's getting a cut of every new Apple TV subscription that uh, signs up in the States. Uh, be under no illusion. Messi is going to make money from being in the States. But I applaud him for actually making the decision to go to the States because I think at the end of it, he's he's getting 20 or 30 million a year from the Saudis for just being a brand ambassador. And, you know, we talk about RTE brand ambassadors and all that type of stuff. Maybe we won't, we won't talk about that stuff too much, uh, uh, get politically today. But he is gone to Miami where there is a large Latino population he, I think, understands the beautiful game. I think he still loves the beautiful game. The World Cup is coming to the States in two years' time. It's going to be win-win-win for American soccer. And if you look at uh, how uh, American soccer was looked at, basically, where lads went to retire. Beckham went there to retire. Beckham took the money and went. 
but he was going to retire. The Saudis are taking, uh, like Mbappe isn't going to Saudi, we'll say, to retire. He's going just for the money. But he, he could still play at any top level team uh, around the place. But the, okay. the American League is coming around where there are people coming over from the uh, MLS clubs are now coming to Europe. It's not the other way around. They're still getting players in, but because they've developed it well that the, the players are coming around. You'll get to know Taylor Twellman. If you sign up for your Apple TV subscription with Messi, he'll be the guy commentating on the games. There you go, Jim. Listen, talk about feeling old. We're going to wrap it up now in, in the next couple of minutes. Yeah. Uh, Brian, yeah, I, 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 I'm under a little bit of pressure that's okay. because I do, I do have to dip down. I, I'm just after being handed a delivery docket to go and get some stuff. Uh, as uh, Luke was saying there about the commercial end of it, uh, yes, I'm still involved in the commercial end of surviving. But uh, yeah, there's no doubt that I think Messi going to America uh, will give the game a serious what would you call it, uh, lift. But then again, he's from South America. There is a massive South American population in uh, the southern states in America. And uh, so, uh, you know, he'd be nearly like home from home. And after all, there's no great uh, hardship in moving to live in uh, down the, in that part of America where all the top golfers live. So, um, yeah, I think he's going to be very good for the game. Uh, the man is worth so much money anyway. That whatever the Saudis would give him, he probably wouldn't have a, a, a what you call big enough to take it. So, um, yeah, and he probably has a young family as well. Uh, so, uh, living in America would probably suit a man like him a lot more than moving to Saudi to live full time. And after all, he lived in, in Barcelona for a long time. There wouldn't be a hell of a lot difference between the lifestyle in Barcelona and in Miami, would Not really. Guys, no. uh, a pleasure talking to you. I enjoyed it uh, this morning. We covered a lot of stuff and uh, we'll do it again soon, Tom. Listen, now, thanks. Listen, and Luke. And, and listen, Brian, he's he's here for his yearly sabbatical back again. Uh, so that's that's fantastic to have. And we're going we're gonna to basically finish up the show with a word from Brian. But Jim, thanks a million as ever for giving us your special and insights the, into they, football. The Clare soccer season is kicking off on the 20th of August. That's um, it. We're looking forward to seeing Mount Shannon. I presume you have new gear and all of that season. Uh, so. We're hoping to Looking get us forward to that. Listen, we're hoping to get a Saudi backer between now and the twentieth of August. And listen, a uh, best of luck to the ladies who are playing Nigeria next week and a good next positive result. That's right. And listen, take care, Jim. Have a great weekend. And we're going to finish out with with Brian now and his thoughts okay. of everything that we've just been. And put on a good piece of music, Tom, before you finish. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 what? You, 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 what request have you, Jim? We'll play it for you. You can I listen have, back to I, it. Any, I'm a big fan of Waylon Jennings, so put on a nice Waylon Jennings track. Then. Okay, we'll do that. All right, Jim, you, you take care. Good you go stuff. off and look after business, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs> Good luck, guys. Bye-bye. 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 pleasure as always. Bye-bye. Thank you. Oh, Jim would make a great Santa Claus, wouldn't he, on, on, on radio? He really would with that laugh that he has. Brian, uh, you know, to conclude, to summarise, I, you know, I've really enjoyed the morning. Anyone that's into their football, um, I think hopefully will have enjoyed the show too. Brian, your final thoughts on today? Uh, just just a couple of things. I think um, uh, Jim mentioned that Shamrock Rovers haven't really done well in Europe. And I think... The reason we uh, changed to a summer soccer model here in Ireland was to 
allow our teams to do better in Europe because essentially Shamrock Rovers and all the League of Ireland clubs are, are mid-season, whereas the teams they're playing are just coming in from pre-season. So that should have helped them do better, but it hasn't. So why? That That's a story for another day. Just the other thing to conclude, um, uh, I, I really am delighted to see Messi go to the States. I really love Messi. I think he's one of the best footballers that I've ever seen and I was absolutely delighted when he got to lift the World Cup and I think uh, that'll really uh, help the fact that he's the the World Cup winning captain now going to play in America is going to be uh, brilliant for the American League Um, I think a lot of what Lucas said about the the business side of it they're doing it all the right way I can I'm old enough to remember a previous version of uh, football in in America the the NASL and it didn't really work out whereas they've learned from that and they're doing it the right way and I think as we as we approach 2026 um, we're going to be hearing a lot more about uh, club football in America and I think it is going to be uh, an absolutely fantastic uh, tournament Um, and then uh, 2028 we're, we're going to be hosting uh, or helping the host uh, so you know the, there's a, a lot to look forward there in, in the future Well I'm going to finish with my few words and that is um, myself and the guru beside me we, we went off on a journey it was, it was like um, I, I don't know how you describe it we got a flight over to Chicago we got a bus to the suburbs we headed off to an electrical outlet with Best Buy. Best Buy. Yeah. And the, the sole purpose of our journey was, well, the beginning of it was anyway, to watch a few MLS games. But our first night in Chicago, we had to meet a certain gentleman. And we went up to um, the shop. We got there. It was like in the middle of God knows where. We not got great, there. Not great. Uh, not a great. Downtown not a great, Chicago. No, yeah. not a great district. Not a great district. I'm sounding a bit like Donald Trump now. (laughs) But the thing is, we arrived and you know the way you have a VIP line and they have this rope and they just put it across our path to say, sorry, we're finished. You can't meet the legendary, I can't pronounce his first name, Chimacho Blanco. Everyone knew him as Blanco with the Chicago fans. Again, Mexican, a legend with the national team, and he went on to actually score some very important yeah. penalties. I think it was in the World Cup, the couple of the year after, whatever. But he retired shortly afterwards. We act. I I pleaded with him. I showed him our Irish passports. The guy at the end of the line, please. It was actually quite. Uh, it was quite impressive, Brian, to watch this lad <laughs> sort of try and plead with a lad. Said we're after traveling <laughs> three and a half thousand miles. We're after getting off a plane to come and see this man. Uh, he'd be a Chicago fireman. Uh, so so I I I, w- I I said I'd be the revolution man. So I just didn't pay much comment. But fair as uh, he the, lifted the rope. The, the gift of the Blarney worked. It gifted a party. He let us through, yep. and he was just signing the last person, basically, and he was finishing up. And the two paddies arrive in. How's it going, Blank? <laughs> Any chance you'll sign? Yeah. So we got a couple of DVDs and a couple of shirts and bits. But he, I brought along my Chicago Fire shirt, and he, I think he signed it, Luke, he didn't did. he? He did. And it's an old one of the old ones because. Um, uh, Brian Robert McBride was one of my favourite players with Fulham, of course, yeah. and he started off with the Columbus crew. So myself and Luke have always had a love of the American game, you know, so I can 
as I said, I can identify there. Listen, Luke, anything else? Are we all good as you wear a Boston uh, T-shirt to the uh, to the studio today? Very appropriate. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, the the whole business side of things is something I, w- I would love to talk to you uh, with down, down, down the line. And I'll leave you with this. Uh, Brian, Tala Stadium, they're expanding. I think, is it up to 10,000? 10, 10, uh, just over 10,000. 10,000, 10, yeah. okay. That's realistically, if we could have five or six stadiums for men's and, I would say, ladies' soccer that were available, and this whole joint venture, the building we're in, Tom, is no longer just a GA-only facility. There's a GA pitch out the front, there's dressing rooms and all the rest of it. We say uh, hurling is the main activity that goes on here, but it is now available to so many other groups. The radio being one. Well, you know, the drama next door. Drama next door. You know, it's available to so many different groups. If you have a stadium and the proper facilities built around it, that are, and it's not just that, you know, the there's one club playing out of here. There could be two or three clubs, and then you could have feeder facilities. It'd be like, you know, say, you know, Cravens would say, uh, could be a feeder facility. Tulla could be a feeder facility into it that you would get it. That's what the game needs. Hopefully it'll go that way. But I'm just going to leave you with one. And as I said, go back to business. Uh, have you heard of The Current? The Current? Yeah. No. No. Brian, I, we spoke about it beforehand. The Kansas City Current, as in C-U-R-R-E-N-T. What I will say is, look them up. They're a professional ladies soccer team in the States and they're going to be famous. They're successful in the States, but they're going to be famous for one particular reason. The first professional sports stadium for a women's team of any description is being built, an 11,500-seater stadium. That's where women's football is in the States. It's great to see, and it's a little bit like where the lads' football was back when Major League Soccer started. When when the league started, you had the Columbus Crew had they built a so- an SSL, uh, sorry SSS soccer specific stadium, right? I think it was a capacity of fourteen thousand. They've upgraded and built another one since, which is a sign of how things are going. The women's game in the states is at a level where a professional women's soccer team can build their own stadium, I think it's a great portent for things to years to come. And it's, it's not going to be getting any easier to beat the Yanks, I think, in, in women's soccer down the years. So that's my note. Look them up. The Kansas City Current. Well, as we are Scarif Bay Community Radio and a local radio station, I'm going to add to that by saying the Clare and District Soccer League are embarking on play on on a project to build ladies changing rooms over in Dura specific ladies changing rooms and I think it's great to see and I suppose isn't it wonderful that the game is evolving for everyone and all I want to say at this stage of our show is thanks a million for everyone tuning in it's been a long time since we've been here in studio. A massive thank you to Brian Quigley for taking the time out today to join us. To Jim Madden, of course, sitting on a lovely cosy seat somewhere in Shannon uh, with his usual um, wonderful, insightful knowledge in the game. And uh, all I have to say now is best of luck to the ladies. Out believe, 
let's get a result. They haven't qualified out of their group, but they've done our country proud in the way they've represented the game. And um, I suppose the only thing I have left to say is eat, sleep, football, repeat. Right. Brian, I'll go with that. Thanks a million. And we'll dig out a whale on Jelly's uh, song to finish on for behalf of Jim. So, till next time. Take care. Lord, it's the same old tune, fiddle and guitar. Where do we take it from here? Rhinestone suits and new shiny cars. It's been the same way for years. We need to change. Somebody told me when I came to Nashville, son, you finally got it made. Old Hank made it here We're all sure that you will But I don't think Hank done it this way no. I don't think Hank done it this way Look at Take it off.